This is an ABC podcast. It used to be that diplomacy was a matter of government to government. With public diplomacy, particularly using new media tools, governments can reach out with great ease to the publics of other countries. There is rapid change, and I think we still have systems of diplomacy that in some ways are 19th or early 20th century in style. That's a fundamental change that we're still coming to terms with. What you're seeing right now is more personalised diplomacy. The question is, is, can it get any worse? Diplomacy is a craft that really revolves around the use of language, but it's a different style of language. Generally, it tends to be about smoothing off the sharp edges. So the language that we've seen of late, the language that tends to be used by political leaders acting as in their diplomatic capacity, has been much more jarring, shocking, um, undiplomatic, if you like. Almost every aspect of diplomacy, and indeed what it means to be a diplomat, is currently being rewritten. That's as exciting as it is concerning and problematic. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Over the next few episodes, we'll explore some of those critical changes and what they might mean for the future. In this episode, we'll focus primarily on the superpowers, China and the United States, not just because they're the biggest, but because developments in both those countries are among the most interesting and significant. To the United States first, and the decline of the once mighty State Department. I'm Monica Duffy-Toft. I'm Professor of International Politics at Tufts University, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and the Director of the Center for Strategic Studies. So just broadly speaking, the State Department has always been underfunded. You can look at the U.S. Department of Defense, and it's $600 billion, and it just got a budget increase, uh, along with Homeland Security and Veterans Affairs. So they're being increased at a time where the State Department was, even in 2015 under Obama, was only $47 billion. So, you know, you've got $600 billion versus $47 billion. And in the most recent budget, it was down to $37.8 billion. So it's decreased even more by 30 under the Trump administration. And another very interesting aspect is, is if you look at the shift in the United States and our State Department, we have career diplomats. These are people who, you know, go to my school, the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, you know, get an education, and then they spend years basically mentoring and being mentored by other diplomats and foreign service personnel. And they are the backbone of the State Department. And in most administrations, they're the majority of people who serve. So under Obama, 70 percent of the State Department ambassadorships were filled by careerists and 30 percent by political appointees, so friends of the president and people who gave large donations or something like that. Under the Trump administration, we've seen that shift where you've got currently 62 percent of the appointments are political and only 37 percent, actually almost 38 percent, are career diplomats. And so that's worrisome because many career diplomats at the senior levels are stepping down mid-level are sort of groping their way through it, and then junior people are not going in because they're seeing sort of this denuded State Department, and they're not sure they're going to have a great career uh, that their predecessors had. So, so there's been some pretty dynamic and swift changes happening in the State Department, not only financially, but in resources. 
So the cuts at the State Department predate Donald Trump. They go back several presidents, according to Monica Duffy-Toft. But how much of the recent change has been incidental and how much of it has been targeted? I think it's both. I think some administrations are more skeptical, globally speaking, about sort of wariness of expertise and scientific knowledge. And so I think people look askew about these bureaucrats who have been in office for a long time, these public servants. So I think that is part of the story. And I think it's come to a head under the current administration. But I think the current administration, particularly under Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, made it very, very clear that they were going to rework the State Department, restructure the State Department. They had a higher freeze. The new Secretary of State Pompeo has come in and he promised to sort of override that they were going to re, you know, open up the positions again. But, you know, you read the, the more recent news and it looks as if Pompeo is not going to do that. And that's not only because of the skepticism about sort of expertise, but then also for political reasons, both ideological, people believing in small government, that the State Department's too big, it needs to be cut further back, but then also for political reasons that they want to get rid of people who they believe were loyal or were supporters of the prior administration or administrations and not wanting them to be part of this governance structure. And I think that second explanation, that second ideological political argument, the evidence is pretty clear when you've got this sort of tilting and this shifting, this balance from career diplomats to now these are political appointees. I mean, this complete shift over from the Obama administration. And, you know, Obama followed on the Bush administration, yet this is the most uh, heavily skewed in terms of State Department, in terms of appointments on the political side versus the career side. There still is a, a very big part in world affairs to be played by diplomats. And if you limit those diplomats' abilities to do their jobs because of political considerations, whether it's the United States or anybody else, I think the whole world suffers because of that. Philip Sieb, Professor of Public Diplomacy and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Diplomacy is important, and diplomats have to know what they're doing and be able to do their jobs as professionals. Anything that gets in the way of that is going to produce uh, bad results, I think. Does that trend, particularly under the current president, does that reflect a distrust of the diplomatic service and the, and the ability of diplomats to achieve goals? Well, I think there's some distrust, but that's, that is misplaced for some fairly obscure partisan reasons. I think it's more a lack of understanding of how the how foreign policy works. And uh, you don't just uh, conduct foreign policy by whim. You don't just hop on Air Force One and go to a country and engage in a heavily televised meeting and say, well, that's diplomacy. Diplomacy is an ongoing process that requires a very solid foundation. That's what diplomats build. And uh, then you have your summit meetings very occasionally, but the foundation has to be built. If you strip your, your foreign policy establishment of the people who are competent to design and build that foundation, eventually it's going to collapse. And yet that's exactly what the current US administration seems determined to do. Monica Duffy-Toft, also talks about a rise in what she calls kinetic diplomacy, where the military and the intelligence community are increasingly seen as America's chief agents of international affairs. 
So I started looking at U.S. deployment force, military force overseas since the founding of the nation in 1776. And I was really struck about sort of this precipitous increase. I mean, this real increase in the number of deployments. So the use of armed forces overseas, particularly since the 2000s, since the beginning of this century. And then in particular, looking at the deployment of special operations forces. So these are the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, the Air Force and the Army, the, the Rangers, they have their own. And then also drones. What unnerved me about that is at the same time, we're seeing a diminishment in the use of diplomacy or, or the State Department uh, not being as strong as it was in the past. You see this rise in the deployment of these forces, a wholesale increase. Right now, we have 85 ambassadorial appointments out of 188 made, yet the numbers that we have is 149 special operations forces deployed around the world. So in one-third of the countries, we have ambassadors, but in three-quarters, we have special operators. And so for me, kinetic diplomacy is this idea of diplomacy by armed force, where special operators actually become the face of the United States. And they're the ones sort of trying to, you know, get other countries to do what we want them to do. You know, in the old days, it was, you know, diplomacy and coercion and, and, and compellence. And without the diplomats on the ground, my concern is, is that the special operators and then relatedly drone operations where you're not putting... Americans on the ground, either special operators or diplomats, to me, this is very unsettling. We don't have as much public scrutiny about what they're doing. And as a democracy, we would like to know where our forces and where our tax dollars are being deployed. And that's not happening. So there's some worrisome aspects with the use and the deployment of these special operations forces around the world. There is rapid change, and I think we still have systems of diplomacy that in some ways are 19th or early 20th century in style. That's a fundamental change that we're still coming to terms with. Those of us that want to see a highly effective, highly engaged United States as a renewed force for leadership in a rules-based global order, we want to see the United States engage comprehensively with the world. Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College at the ANU, the Australian National University. To reflect, uh, I guess, the, the better angels of the United States, the fact that it does have a very sophisticated civil society. It's not all about military preponderance. And so I guess it's true that there would be concerns about the US emphasising the military side of things too heavily in its diplomacy. But on the other hand, it's also worth noting that Diplomacy these days is, and I think into the future, is never going to be the sole preserve of foreign ministries. Again, you're seeing all kinds of arms of government, whether it's military and intelligence on the one hand, whether it's development assistance, industry, science, education, technology, you name it. On the other hand, also becoming much more international, much more outward looking. But we do need to find a way of integrating all of these elements of national authority and national power in the way that we engage with the world. And that will have a role for the military, but as one player among many. From Brussels, the President flies to Britain where he'll meet Brexit burden Prime Minister Theresa May, the Queen and probably play golf in Scotland. It's there he'll prepare for the summit meeting in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So I have NATO, I have the UK, which is in somewhat turmoil, 
and I have Putin. Frankly, Putin may be the easiest of them all. Who would think? Who would think? In the United States at the moment, the foreign policy seems to be dictated by the president himself. It's a very personal foreign policy. So what are the implications of that? Monica Duffy-Toft again. You know, on the one hand, when I in moments where, my, where I'm thinking about this, because it is a pretty dramatic change under President Obama, you could say President Bush and also President Clinton, uh, they did have, you know, this incredible staff of experts that in the State Department, their national security, uh, Department of Defense, and they relied on them. And, you know, some people said that Obama relied on them too much. You know, he wanted he should have made more decisions. And then I think back to uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. I mean, in a sense, it was their personal relationship that broke the end of the Cold War, that sort of helped, where these two men understood each other and that that it wasn't necessary to threaten one another. The problem, I think, with the Trump administration and, and President Trump in particular is he seems so mercurial and, and it seems so really personalistic. And when we talk about personalistic leaders and he's not the most educated and, and he doesn't have the most knowledge of history. And he's admitted, you know, that he goes from the gut. And, you know, when he was going in to meet Kim, President Kim of, of North Korea, he said, I'll know in, you know, in, in a matter of seconds whether this is going to go well or not. And the problem, as we all know, is sometimes our gut is wrong and uh, we don't have enough information to sort and, and enough people around us to sort of temper what we think might be right. And so that's what's uh, concerning. So far, I think we've gotten lucky. We haven't had a, a, a disaster or, 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 or a dangerous situation arise. It got pretty scary with Kim and Trump when they were talking about the size of their nuclear weapons and their arsenals. But that seems to have been tempered. And of course, it's not just Donald Trump, is it? I mean, a, a lot of global leaders are highly personal in the way they talk about international issues at the moment. So he's just one player among many, isn't he? No, he is. I mean, and the others are Erdogan. Now he, President Erdogan of Turkey, who's just been reelected. Another one is Urban, uh, President Urban of, of Hungary, right? So, no, he's not alone in doing that. But typically, you know, in a democratic system, uh, you have more checks and balances on the foreign policy. And then also there's a recognition and an acknowledgement of the level of expertise within the institutions of the state. Yes, these personalistic, it can help and it can make some dramatic changes. But then you need to have the staff that you can rely on later to actually implement it. Right. It's not just enough to make a pronouncement, but then the nitty gritty of, of actually making positive change, relying on the staff and trusting that that staff is doing a good job. My concern is that this particular administration and some of the other administrations, you can talk about Turkey, Hungary, Poland is another one, whether that's going to be the case. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. As Professor Duffy Toft points out, there are in democratic countries at least some checks and balances on the direction and implementation of foreign policy, even if at times they prove somewhat ineffective. But in non-democratic countries, there are no such checks. China's foreign policy has become increasingly assertive in recent times, and like the United States, its diplomatic core is undergoing a dramatic change. Meriden Varal is the director of the East Asia program at Australia's Lowy Institute. She spent time teaching international relations at the China Foreign Affairs University in Beijing. 
The new breed of Chinese diplomat, she says, is being taught to be highly nationalistic, to identify the interests of the ruling Chinese Communist Party with the interests of the nation, and to adopt an us-against-them approach to the outside world. They're being taught to represent the Chinese nation publicly and in a very particular way. And those worldviews and ideas that they're being immersed in, there's probably four that I think came out most strongly in my time there. And they were the ideas that history is destiny, and that is to say that the past is the blueprint for the future. So how things were is the way that how things will be. And what that looks like is related to the next worldview, which is this victimisation narrative that China has been humiliated and bullied and persecuted by outsiders. And that until, say, the mid-1800s, the opium wars in the mid-1800s, China was an enormously important and well-respected international player. You know, the, the Chinese GDP before that time was greater than all the rest of the world put together. And so linked with that first worldview, what they see is that the rest of the world or these allied forces came together in the mid-1800s and they pulled China down from its rightful place in the world and they persecuted it and tormented it until it was a weak shadow of its former self. And they think that that history is on track to be rectified. The third worldview is the idea that the region is kind of like a family. So rather than seeing the countries in the region as exactly equal, they see it more as a hierarchy and they see themselves, China, as a sort of benevolent father figure, benevolent but strict father figure uh, who will be making sure that there's the right kind of order, that everybody benefits, but it's a, it's a relationship of complementarities rather than a relationship of equals. And the fourth worldview is the idea that there are certain cultural characteristics and these are immutable. So how that plays out in practice, these students really articulate this very profoundly, particularly when it comes to China, Japan and the US. China is and has always been and always will be, according to this narrative, absolutely peaceful, non-expansionist, non-hegemonic, non-imperialist. The US, on the other hand, is fundamentally, according to this perspective, imperialistic and hegemonic. And Japan is aggressive, expansionist and imperialistic. And so everything that the US or Japan does is seen by Chinese in general, but particularly by these diplomats who, with this training, through these lenses, so that the US is always seen to be bullying or harassing or trying to keep China down. And Japan is always untrustworthy. And because they've this belief that China will always has always been peaceful and therefore will always be peaceful, these students can't understand why anyone would be concerned about China's increased role in the world or China's rise. And they find that this is just so incomprehensible that, of course, it feeds straight back into that other narrative that everybody's trying to bully and persecute them. Does this, though, constitute a new form of diplomacy for China? Is it remarkably different from the past? I'm not particularly familiar with the diplomats of the past, but this way of educating people to think quite so nationalistically in quite such determined and inflexible ways, presumably is going to result in different behaviours in the diplomatic world. And I think maybe you can look at the um, Kimberley process meeting, which was it in May last year. And in this meeting, Julie Bishop was giving the welcome to country, which is an important moment. And 
the Chinese representative there, the mainland Chinese representative there, started to shout and kick up a fuss because there was a Taiwanese representative at the table and he could not let it go until this Taiwanese person was not at the table. And from our point of view, that is undiplomatic behaviour. That is fairly egregious breaking of diplomatic norms. That is bad timing and bad bad performance. But from that diplomat's perspective, he could not let that meeting go on one moment longer with the insult of having a Taiwanese person as a sovereign equal at that table. And thinking about who he's performing to, who he's reporting to, who's watching his behaviour, that was the right thing to do for him. And whilst it sort of made this furor and this sense of, you know, Chinese diplomats behaving badly, for him, that was the right thing to do. What are the implications then for not just the, uh, not just the Asian region, but the broader world? I think in combination with what many people are seeing as an increased assertiveness among Chinese people in recent years, the implications are, I think, for quite difficult times ahead in diplomatic negotiations and diplomatic discussions. It's hard to do the diplomatic dance, that flexibility, that ability to take a few steps sideways, maybe a step back in order to get where you're going, ultimately, if someone is so fixed in their views and so determined that they're right and so unwilling to compromise because of that performative aspect of what they're doing, it's going to make it very difficult to move ahead in a way that's mutually agreeable. And that means it'll also be difficult for Chinese officials in ultimately getting what they want from their diplomatic efforts. Right. Well, other people don't see the world in quite the same way. Diplomacy is the art of getting other people to do or to want what you want. I mean, it's a sort of soft power job. And if you are wedded to these ideas about how others see you and you're interpreting everything that they do and say through that particular lens, it's going to be difficult to be as deft and as responsive as you need to be. A number of countries lay claim to the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, but CNBC reports China has installed anti-ship weaponry there. If the report is confirmed, this is just Beijing's latest effort to stake its claim in the islands. China's foreign ministry didn't confirm the CNBC report, but told Reuters that China has sovereignty over the islands and that any defenses installed on the Spratlys are for defensive purposes. A surprising new challenge to China's assertive regional diplomacy has been the creation of the geopolitical term Indo-Pacific region an international initiative driven, incidentally, by Australia. Various countries have now begun using the term in the hope of easing tensions in the region traditionally known as the Asia-Pacific. Rory Medcar from the ANU believes the move is not simply cosmetic. So the term Indo-Pacific is much more than a slogan, in my view. I mean, it's very easy to say we've simply rebadged the region, it's the same region. But what's different, I guess, about the Indo-Pacific is that it gives a fairly equal weighting to the two big oceans to either side of Australia, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And for many years, we focused on the Pacific and Southeast Asia and East Asia, really to the complete neglect of the Indian Ocean, India, South Asia, and so forth. Now, this is not about suddenly putting India front and centre of Australia's diplomacy, 
but it's about the fact that all of the powers that we engage with in East Asia, whether it's China or Japan or Indonesia or others, they themselves are increasingly engaged with the Indian Ocean and South Asia. They depend acutely on the sea lanes across the Indian Ocean for their energy and for their trade. I mean, after all, China is now unfolding this so-called Belt and Road initiative of infrastructure across the Indian Ocean and South Asia, precisely because its interests, in its view, lie there. And so, in many ways, I think Australia renaming its region the Indo-Pacific was anticipating a lot of this change, reflecting Australia's real geography. The big question now is, what do we do with this idea? Because whether it is only a name or whether it's something very substantial will depend on the policies that follow. And the impact, though, could be significant, couldn't it? This may not just be an issue of rebranding. Well, I think the impact will be significant because if you look at the military dimension, Australia's military, particularly naval engagement in the region, we're increasingly recognised that we have a huge opportunity as well as a huge challenge in monitoring those sea lanes, monitoring the waters around us, particularly those very strategically significant waters of the eastern Indian Ocean, with so much of the traffic that other countries depends on is transiting. If you look at it at an economic or a geoeconomic dimension, although India is not going to be the next China anytime soon, it is on a track to be one of the three big powers this century, both economically and in security terms, and of course will surpass China's population reasonably soon. And then if you look at the Indo-Pacific in a diplomatic sense, it brings all kinds of benefits for Australia. It puts Australia, in a sense, a bit closer to the centre of the action, Australia and indeed some of our Southeast Asian friends like Indonesia and Singapore, and it gives us a much larger pool of potential partners to work with in trying to achieve stability in the region and to moderate the disruptive effects of Chinese power and also the disruptive effects of the uncertainty about where the United States is headed. So it could have real-world implications. It depends very strongly now on whether Australia develops a true Indo-Pacific strategy, I guess, leveraging all these arms of of government and uh, and national assets to follow through on the Indo-Pacific branding. And I think we're getting there. I think that's the direction that government and indeed the opposition is also heading. And certainly others, particularly China, to some extent Japan, to some extent Indonesia uh, and the United States are also moving in that direction. I mean, even the French, who sometimes we think are out of the region, have emphasised that France uh, and its maritime engagement with the world is an Indo-Pacific power because France, after all, has territory in both the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. So suddenly we are pretty close to uh, the centre of gravity on this issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what appears on the surface as as a simple name change, as as a redefinition, in the minds of world leaders, in the minds of their diplomats, that can have significance, can't it? Well, Anthony, I think that's right. If you look at not only names, but also what I would call mental maps, that is, as you say, the maps in the minds of leaders and decision makers, they have very practical real world effects. They determine where you see your potential partners, where you see your potential risks or adversaries. They help determine which regional organisations you want to form, which are the clubs you want to form and who is in and who is out and why. 
They also help determine things like where do you allocate your resources, your military deployments, your aid and development assistance, where might you open new diplomatic missions, and so forth. So I think if you go back to much more familiar terms like the Asia-Pacific, you know, the North Atlantic, Europe, East Asia, Southeast Asia, Asia itself, all of these terms originally were, again, mere names, if you like, mere mental maps that decision makers then used to create new power relationships. And so I think we're at the start of a very long Indo-Pacific journey, partly because countries like China are now depending much more heavily on this wider region, on the Indian Ocean, on South Asia, indeed on Africa, for their own prosperity and security. That's creating destabilising effects. Others are responding. We need to find a way to manage dynamics across this big canvas. So I think we are at the start of a pretty long Indo-Pacific moment. Very diplomatically put. Rory Medcar from the Australian National University. Next week, we'll bring you part two of our look at the future of diplomacy, speed, technology, and trying to keep pace in the world of social media. What skills will future diplomats need to be effective? That's next week. Thanks to Karen Savanovitz and sound engineer Dave White. I'm Anthony Fennell. This is Future Tense. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.